Good morning. Several uh, years ago, there was an advertising uh, campaign that uh, asked a question in their advertising uh, that was so thought-provoking and so provocative that it captured the heart of a generation. And uh, as soon as I say the line, you're going to have heard this advertising campaign, but you'll remember it uh, if you're over the age of 30. I would say you're probably going to remember this. But the, the, question, the question went like this. What exactly would you do for a Klondike bar? Right? And uh, there was a, a little jingle with it, and you may remember it, you know, there were people that clucked like a chicken, there were people that did all sorts of uh, things for the Klondike bar, and I, I admit, I probably would do something like that, honestly, it's a, it's a delicious dessert, but um, I, I think one of the reasons that the campaign was so successful is it hit on a conversation that we started last week that I think is really important, is what is the, motiva- the motivation of your life? Um, what is your motivation for how you live and in your marriage, your life, your family, even the church, your faith? Uh, what, what, it is, what is it exactly that is motivating you? And this is what Paul is going to hit on. If you have your Bibles, uh, Philippians 1. We'll be in Philippians uh, for uh, the second week in a row. And a lot of people think that the book of Philippians is a book that is all about joy. And the word joy appears a ton in Philippians. Joy, 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 rejoice, all sorts of different versions of the word uh, joy. But I think you could make an argument that the book of Philippians is actually about motivation. I'm gonna, there's several passages about motivation in the book of Philippians. And I think that Paul is going to make the argument that when your motivation is correct and when it's in the right place, that joy comes that joy follows motivation. And that's what makes this topic this morning so important. We're closing out this series uh, called Road Trip, where we've been looking at kind of our overarching values and uh, beliefs and who we want to be. Our our mission statement is that we want to be a growing family, journeying together to be more like Jesus. And so we've just been asking, what does that journey look like for a believer in Jesus? What what exactly does it look like? And and Paul is going to, I wanted to save this for last, because Paul is going to hit on the topic of our motivations that as a people and as a church, we wanna have the right motivation in place for our life. We wanna have this motivation that we're gonna talk about this morning, uh, driving our life and driving our family and driving our church. And when this motivation is in place, I've seen again and again and again in people's lives, when this motivation is in place, joy comes. And so you may know about the book of Philippians that Paul wrote it uh, from uh, the book uh, from, from prison, and uh, he kind of you, you might wonder somebody that 's in kind of under house arrest in prison, what is it exactly that motivates them? Is it getting out? Is it life on the outside? Is it anger anger because maybe Paul felt like he was unjustly in prison? What exactly motivates him and Paul tells us in Philippians one now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that has what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. This is verse 12. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everybody else that I am in chains for Christ. Chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am changed, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. 
and because of this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you and and for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. So Paul says, beautiful text, right? As he's awaiting to kind of figure out if he's gonna live or die, be free or remain in prison. This kind of beautiful text where you can see the engine that is driving Paul's faith. And he says there are two motivations, he hits on two motivations that drive most, people, most people's lives, that are the motivating factor in most people's lives. The first he describes as kind of a negative engine, a, a negative motivation, and he calls it selfish ambition. And he's talking about a group of ministers, pastors, and leaders who have discovered that the good news of Jesus Christ, and specifically preaching and teaching, that through that they can make a name for themselves. And so they're driven by this engine called selfish ambition. And Paul will, in verse 15, he calls it envy which is a trait that resents you for getting ahead because you're getting ahead of me and I I resent you for that, that's envy. And then rivalry, he calls it later, which is a trait of competition that even though we're on the same team, I have to beat you, I have to get ahead of you, I have to win. And then Paul says in verse 18, he says, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, that Christ is preached. And there's our word motivation. How many of you know that Paul, while he's talking about false teachers and pastors and leaders and all of that, that you don't have to be a teacher or pastor type to suffer from selfish ambition? Anybody who places themselves in the center of their universe and says, my way, my will, uh, obey my commands, anybody who places them in the seat of God is motivated by this. And listen, if you've ever been married to this person, you know how difficult that can be. You're married to someone who places themselves in the center of the universe. If you've ever worked for this person, had them as a boss, that they are the center of the company, they place themselves in the center. If you've ever been tried to be friends with a person like this, that everything is about them, everything is for them, uh, everything, the universe revolves around them, you know how miserable this can be. Mary, if you've ever been married to it, if you've ever worked for it, if you've ever been friends with it, you know how miserable this can be. And here's why this is so miserable. When we place ourselves in the center, it's a real simple theological idea. We are sinners. We are not equipped or able to be in the center of anything. And so when we place ourselves in the center and we insist that the world revolve around us, bad things begin to happen. And Paul says, these teachers that have come to you, the Christians in Philippi, the the, the people in your life that are like this, it is not a good thing. When the world revolves around them and they insist it be their way and their commands and they're the little C Christ figure in the relationship, 
Everything kind of centers on them. They are not equipped to do that. They are sinful. They make mistakes. They are human beings. They are not equipped to do that, and bad things begin to happen. So Paul says some have been motivated by this sense of selfishness, but look at how he describes his motivation. Verse 12. He says, now I want you to know, and this is varsity faith, by the way. I'm still working on JV, right? Paul's, Paul's working on varsity here, all right? Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard that I am in chains. What's the last two words? For Christ. So Paul is saying there is an overarching, better motivation that he has. It's a huge motivation for him, and it was making Christ and his good news and who he is front and center. This Christ who came and lived a perfect life and died on a cross and three days was resurrected and ascended up to heaven and is now at the right hand of God. Paul wanted to give his life, that this man that he met on the road to Damascus, right? Light, bright light shone in uh, uh, Paul's, Paul's face, much lighter than these lights, right? Um, bright light shone in his face and Christ made himself known to Paul. And from that day forward, Paul said, my motivation is to make him known, right? My motivation is to make his desire known, his person known, his miracles known. My desire is to make sure people know Christ. And Paul was impossible to deal with because they said, you put me into prison, my motivation is to help the guards know Christ. You free me, I will preach all over Asia Minor and make sure they know Christ. You kill me, my death will spread all throughout the nations and people will hear about Christ. You couldn't deal with a guy that had this motivation. There's nothing you can do to him. Because Paul says, whether, by, whether I live or die, my motivation remains the same. I am going to make Christ known. Let me show you this in verse 20. I eagerly expect and hope that I will uh, in now uh, in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage. He's praying, give me sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, either by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What do you do with that dude? There's nothing you can do. We're going to kill you to, li- to, to die as gain. We're going to let you live to live as Christ. There's nothing you can do. His, and it's because joy follows motivation. So when you read the book of Philippians and you see that Paul had this unstoppable, unshakable joy, this is why. He had his motivation in place. The engine was in place that was driving his life, and it was Christ. I'm going to make him known. I'm going to make his name great. I'm going to make sure people focus on him and not in me. Christ will be exalted. And this was a huge change in, in, in motivation for, for Paul. Right? He, he used to be a church persecutor. He went from church persecutor to pastor in a matter of days. Right? This huge change. And the further Paul got down this road, the more intact this motivation became. As soon as he stopped persecuting the church, which is what, which is what he did before, he became a Christian leader. As he traveled down the road that we've been talking about, as he's been on this road trip with Christ, he found that his selfish ambition and his vain conceit began to fall away, and his motivation became Christ. His motivation was Christ that he would be known and exalted and worshiped to say it another way, 
Paul lived, and this is the more churchy way to say it, but uh, biblically accurate, Paul lived for the glory of God. That's what I'm describing. If if anybody were to come to you and say, what is your motivation in this world? Hopefully, uh, and I'm I'm striving to get there too, it's a one word response. What is your motivation for how you live your life? Christ, Christ. It is one word, and and to say it another way, I am living for the glory of God, that the spotlight is on him, not on me, so that people can see how great he is because Jesus changes everything. And this is what glory means. In the Bible, all glory, to, to define glory, that if you want to say I'm living for the glory of God, all that means is to make known the greatness of someone who is greater. It is to make known the greatness of someone. It is to make known their greatness and how awesome they are. So we use this in a little G way all the time, although glory has kind of fallen out of our vernacular. But if you were to come up to me and you were to say, I just had the most incredible meal. I drove to Springfield. I had the most incredible sandwich I've ever had in my life. Have you ever heard of Chick-fil-A? I'd be like, yes, it is sanctified chicken. It is chicken set apart for the glory of the Lord. That, that is what Chick-fil-A is, right? It's why they're closed on Sundays, right? And so if, if you were to say that to me, I would say, you are little G glorifying Chick-fil-A, right? Now, hopefully that's not the engine of your whole life. If it, if it is, I'll be in the overflow. We want to lay hands and pray, all right? So if you're like, well, I would say big G, Chick-fil-A is my big G. That's what I live for right now. It's a, it's a little G thing. If you were to come up to me and talk to me about uh, how awesome your spouse is or how awesome your kids are, you'd say, man, that you, you're, you are little G glorifying them. And for Paul, Paul says every single person has to answer the question, what is the big G for you? What is the big G? What is the thing that, what is the purpose of your life? What is the big G? What is the thing you're giving glory to? What, what is the thing you're giving worship to? What is the thing that you are laying down your life for? Paul, it was one word for Paul, Christ. I live for Christ. And because of that, he wanted to live. You hear it in the text, he wanted to live. He didn't want Rome to kill him. He wanted to live so, but, but he said, e- either way, because I have my motivation in the right place, either way, I have joy. And so Paul says there's two options for that big G kind of glorifying thing in Paul's mind. It's self, a person who views with a heightened sense of themselves, or God. And here's what's the amazing thing about Christ and about God. Did you know that God glorifies himself uh, kind of introduce you to um, the, the idea of the Trinity. Uh, uh, um, a lot of you that have been around here, you, you've heard us talk about the Trinity before, but you got God the Father who created the heavens and the earth, Christ the Son uh, who went to the cross and died for our sins and resurrected, and then the Holy Spirit who lives in the life of every believer. All, right? all three are God, all three are one. Uh, I went into huge amounts of debt to get my Christian college education. I don't even understand this, all right? So, um, and yet I still have to pay the debt, right? Um, And uh, it's just one of those huge kind of complicated theological ideas, this idea of the Trinity. But Jesus teaches us in John 16 and 17 that the different parts of the Trinity glorify themselves. The Father, God the Father, who created the heavens and the earth, he glorifies the Son, The Son glorifies the Father. The Spirit glorifies the Son. And here's why this is so cool. Within the Trinity, can we agree no one knows the Father like the Son? 
Nobody knows the Son like the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, they, they know each other so well. They are one in this way. No one's been closer with, to, to itself than, than the Trinity, and every member of the Trinity looks at the other members of the Trinity and says, God the Father is worth your glory. I've seen him. Jesus the Son is worth your glory. I've seen him. The Holy Spirit is worth glorifying. I've seen him. And they've seen each other closely and they still come to the praise that each member is honor, is worthy of honor and glory and praise. So here's my view on this. Who am I to think any differently? And the other biblical word for this idea of giving glory, it, it is worship. Uh, it's why uh, we have o- over here number two is that we're on this worship journey, that we we live for the glory of God to exalt him and show that his ways are best. That's what we do when we worship. And we tend to think of it as singing, what we just did. And singing is certainly, singing is obviously giving honor uh, to God and glory and honor and and praise. But that is such a, that that is one part of worship. It's a small view of worship. Anytime you give a heightened sense to the glory of God. Anytime you give his name, honor, and glory, and praise, you are worshiping. So it is possible to use your money to worship. When you use money God's way, when you follow uh, his example and you're generous, when you do it in his name, you most certainly can use your money for the glory of God. Your marriage, Bible talks a ton about marriage being a way that we can give honor and glory to God. Uh, As a matter of fact, I think in this culture, one of the best ways you can give honor and glory to God is, is to have a healthy marriage. And people are like, man, your marriage is different, Christ. It's Christ. So, so your marriage is an opportunity to do that. The, tomorrow morning, when you go to work at your company, the way you work, work is to the Lord. Uh, the, the way that you work is a way to give honor and, and glory to your creator. So when our vision statement says that we are on a worship journey, we want to be a church that does this well, to glorify God, to exalt Jesus, to live for him in every area of life. It matters so much. Worship matters. And again, here's why. Your joy will follow your worship. It just will. Your joy will follow your worship. It it just does. And so when your worship is in the wrong thing and pointed at the wrong person, some of you have done this where, where you've ended up worshiping a person, a relationship, or you've ended up worshiping a job, or, or you've ended up worshiping a thing, you have found what happens when you do that that joy starts to slip away because that thing was never intended to be the focus of your worship. Christ is. And so Paul teaches us that joy follows your worship. And that's why the book of Philippians has so much joy in it. Joy, 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 this life, supreme joy in the next life. It all flows from who you have decided to glorify and who you have decided to worship. And we've talked about how this can change your attitude about work your attitude about your marriage, your attitude about money. But I think we would be remiss if we didn't also talk about, since that's, this is what the series is all about, I think it changes, our, it changes our attitudes as we gather together as a church family. It changes our attitudes in this room, that when we gather together together as a corporate body to worship our Lord, when we have our right motivation in place, you will get the most joy and you will get the, the, the most peace when your worship is directed at Jesus when we gather together as a church family. So I, I shared this statistic a couple weeks ago, but it, it just, it really bothers me. I'm not going to lie to you. They, they did a study a couple years ago. 89% of Christians believe the church solely exists 
to meet their needs. Did you hear the number? 89% of Christians believe the church exists to meet their needs. And listen, we wanna be a church that cares for one another. You, you go through these seasons where sometimes you just need to sit back and receive. It's okay, don't let a season become a lifetime. All right? It is okay to have a season where it's just like, I need to receive right now. I've emptied the tank. I'm not in a good place. I just need to receive. Welcome. We are glad that you're here. There are times where we all need to do that. Just sit back and receive. I'm just going to go through a season where I'm going to receive. But don't let that season become a lifetime where all you do is sit back and receive, receive, receive. That is a person that is approaching their faith with, with themselves at the center. What can I get? What can I receive? And it becomes all about them. And the, the Christian response to this, the, the response that Paul is calling us to in Philippians is that we want to enter this place, not with ourselves in mind, we want to enter this place in Christ. That this is all about him. This is all for him. This is directed at him. And a joy will follow it when our worship is in the right place. So at a previous church, we were trying to make a really difficult decision. Um, and uh, it doesn't matter what the decision was, but it was gonna affect a lot of people and we were trying to figure it out. And this guy came up to me after church one Sunday and he had a very strong opinion about what decision the leadership of the church should make. And I remember he came to me in the middle of the whole process. He expressed his opinion, which I loved, all right? I love that. He says, I just wanna kind of make my case known. Right? This is kind of what I think should happen. Very respectful, very kind, handled it really, really well. Uh, at the end of the conversation, I expressed my opinion. I said, I think we just disagree, but I, I love you. You're my brother. You know, we're, we're all good and all that. And uh, he was getting ready to leave. And I'll, I'll never forget, he turned around as he was leaving. And he said, but Steve, you just have to remember, the customer is always right. So you need to do what I'm saying we should do. And I remember thinking in that moment, I think we have a different view on who the customer is. I'm not the customer. I love you, you're not the customer. That would be this self-focused model that Paul is talking about. Who's the customer? Jesus. Jesus is the, Jesus is the one we're trying to please. Jesus is the one that our worship is directed at. Jesus is the one that we're all about. And so I think it is very easy sometimes to approach church life with kind of this kind of self view of what I'm gonna receive. And today I just wanna remind us of the honor and glory and praise is directed at Jesus. We are all about and we are all for him. And it will change uh, what, the, the way that you view what happens in these spaces that we have as a church. So one of the things that happens in these spaces before and after church is that conversation happens. I love it. You need to know pastorally, one of my favorite things when I show up for church is I love just kind of walking the hallways and seeing people talk. So like one of the things, this, and, and it's not always spiritual talk. A lot of times it is, but like this morning, it was all about the Illini. Right? People are high-fiving, hugging each other, writing each other checks, right? Here's $10,000, I just, no, 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 right? I, I just want you to be blessed after that game, right? Um, 
It's like, wow, this is really cool, right? Um, so sometimes it's about stuff like that. Um, other times people are just kind of unloading their problems and helping each other work through their problems. And I love, pastorally, I love hearing the conversation in our foyer. But if you approach that time of conversation with a self-centered mindset, those conversations are not gonna be the best blessing to you. They're gonna become all about you and what you need and what you want. And you're not, you're not gonna be able to help another person because you're just gonna be unloading what's going on with you. When Jesus is at the center, it frees me up to kind of seeing you as a commodity that I'm just gonna unload my problems on you or I'm gonna kind of get you to help me with my agenda. It, it frees us from seeing each other as commodities and I start to see you as a created and loved brother and sister in Christ. And all of a sudden I start investing in you. And Paul says, this is when joy comes. So it changes the conversations. I, I think when we gather together and, and the way Paul is teaching us, it changes the way we hear the word of God. That 13 years ago when I came, I told you every single Sunday that you come in, we're gonna hear a message from God's word. Um, we, we just are, that, that's a huge priority that I have. But when you approach this time together, uh, when you approach it from a, a self mindset that Paul ha has talked about in this text, you begin to approach God's word with, a with an attitude of tell me what I want to hear. But when you're all about Christ and his glory and his name, your attitude begins to shift and it becomes tell me what I need to hear. If it bothers me, tell me. I wanna hear what Christ has for me. And if I'm offended, I'm offended. Right, this sermon's a good test case for this, right? Um, if I'm offended, I'm offended. If I'm bothered, I'm bothered. But tell me what Christ has for me in the word. Your attitude shifts. Uh, when we pray, right? When, when you approach it with the self model that Paul is talking about, your prayers can become all about you and what's going on. And listen, some of that's okay. To pray for you and about you, it, it is uh, okay. But th this, when, when you approach it from a self mode, this attitude can creep into our prayer life. I have found it in my, my prayers often. This attitude creeps in of my will be done, Right, when it becomes kind of all about me and my agenda, and it's like, Jesus, I'm just kind of dialing in, I just wanted to tell you what you should do, right? My will be done, right? And when you're Jesus-centered, when, when he's on the throne, all of a sudden you begin to model Jesus's prayer of thy will be done. That you are perfect and you are wise, you know what you're doing, your will be done in this situation. When we gather together, needs are met. When you approach that with self, again, you'll be most focused on your needs. When you, when you approach it in Christ, you will begin to move away from that and you will focus on other people's needs. And finally, when we gather together, we sing. And listen, historically, nothing has been more controversial in the church than the singing of songs. You wanna know one of the most controversial songs ever written in the church? One of the most controversial songs ever written in the church was written in 1527. Nearly split the church. Uh, the, name of the, the name of the song that was so controversial was called A Mighty Fortress Is Our God. You may have heard it before. And it was so controversial because everybody believed that Martin Luther stole the tune from the local bar. And then he changed the you know, and if you think about it, it actually kind of sounds though. A mighty fortress is our God. Hey, yeah, right. Um, <laughs> it sounds that way. I'm sorry, it does. 
right? He got that song from the bar and he changed the lyrics to make it relevant for the church. And it was hugely, hugely controversial. And listen, we all have styles of songs that we like. I do, I do too. Uh, I have songs that I, I like, um, like anthemy songs, songs that kind of start down here and progress. And all of a sudden we're like, yeah, let's, you know, I love that. Right? Um, but we want to be careful about approaching our singing time from a self point of view. That what makes me happy is what matters most. Because the primary song, when you're all about Christ, the primary thing is, is the song about and for Christ. And if it is, it's a good song. If it is, it's a good song. I don't care where the tune came from. It's a good song. If it is for and about Christ. And so Paul is trying to just move us away because I think all of us go through different seasons like this where it is so easy to just kind of become this, uh, Paul calls it the selfish ambition motivation where we kind of live for our glory, our wants, and our needs. And Paul is kind of using himself as an example here to say, let's move away from self and move towards Christ. And so my prayer for us, my prayer for me, my prayer for you is that over the course of the next weeks and months that we would be able to answer the question the exact same way that Paul did. What is your primary motivation in this world? Christ. Christ. What is your primary motivation? Christ. I love my kids. My primary motivation is Christ. Love Cheryl deeply. My primary motivation is Christ. I love you all. I do. I love you deeply. You'll you'll never know how much I love you. My primary motivation is Christ. And when that primary motivation is where it needs to be, joy follows. Joy will come to my marriage when my primary motivation is Christ. Joy will come to my church experience when my primary motivation is Christ. Joy will come to my work life when my primary motivation is Christ. See, the problem is we're all seeking joy and we think if I just make it more about work, if I just make it more about marriage, if I just make it more about the kids, joy will come. And Paul says, no, get your primary motivation in Christ and joy will come to all those other areas. That's my prayer for you. Make sense? May it be so for me. May it be so for you. May our primary motivation be Jesus Christ in his name. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, so much for Jesus. May our motivation be about and for him. And it's so hard, sometimes this creates kind of difficult things, but uh, we, we, we tend to be um, drawn to thinking about ourselves the most. It's human nature, me too but may the thing that drives our life be Jesus. May the thing that drives our life be Jesus. And as we enter into a time of communion right now, I pray this for me and I pray this for our church family, that whatever has been the engine of our life this week, we would lay it down and we would pick up Christ and he would be the engine. He would be the thing we care most about, his name, his glory. It is in his name we pray, amen.